and we'll be happy. So a question for you this morning. Um, do you know who you are? I'm, I'm not talking about a name. Do you know who you are? Do you know where you come from? And do you know where you are going? Do you know who you are? Unless you know where Jesus comes from and where Jesus is going, you don't know who Jesus is. If you don't know where he comes from and where he's going, then he's just a good man dying a horrible death, um, an innocent man dying for something he did not do. If you don't know where Jesus comes from and where Jesus is going, you do not know who Jesus is. This is one of the key concepts. There's many, but they're one of the key concepts in the Gospel of John. And as you go through that book, it's 21 chapters, and more than half of them have extensive segments that deal with where Jesus is from and where he's going. Because the purpose of the book, uh, John tells us in chapter 20, at the end of the book, he tells us this is the reason that he's written this book. He says, Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And he's telling us where he comes from and where he's going. And if you know those two things, then you begin to understand a little bit about the significance, the importance of who Jesus is. And if you don't know those two things, we'll miss it. So let me just run through. We're not going to take all of them because it's a good chunk of the Gospel of John. But I want to just give you a couple of passages here that gives an explanation about uh, some of the ways that John is, is relating the events and the person of Jesus Christ. Of course, we know in John chapter 1, the first four verses talks about Jesus being the Word of God. And he was with God from the very beginning. He's right from the beginning stating the deity of Jesus Christ. And then he begins in verse 14, talking about Jesus as the Word of the Lord. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. He's told us who He is, where He comes from, and why He's here. Now later on, after He's been talking with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, um, the gospel writer makes this statement. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, 
yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So we have the opportunity through Christ to either walk in the grace and mercy of God or we walk under the wrath of God. Later on in John chapter 6, after he's fed the 5,000, he makes this statement. Jesus says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but raise him up at the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then in John chapter 9, this is after healing the man born blind, there's a discussion here because the religious leaders of the day did not want to accept Jesus because he was not coming in a way that they thought he should. Um, And because of the integrity of his life and the way that he lived and the things that he did, it just his presence, just his being among them pointed out the hypocrisy and the shallowness, the emptiness of his life, of their lives. And so light comes into the world. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil and they don't want them to be exposed. And so they try to negate the light and they're going to find out that they can't. So in John, they're interrogating this poor man who's um, been blind all of his life for 40 years and he's been healed and now they're not wanting to acknowledge the miracle. And so they're challenging him. And so this man becomes a public defender. He's a good Christian apologetic, uh, this guy gives. And so they're asking him about uh, where he, where, who Jesus is. And so this is what they say to him in John chapter 9, verse 29. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. See? So they don't know who he is. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. The blind man saw very clearly, didn't he? And he understood where Jesus had come from. Now later on, just before the crucifixion in the upper room, it becomes more plain. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, 
Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, and he washes the feet of the disciples, every one of whom, before sunup the next day, would all run away. One would betray him for money. Um, one would deny and swear with an oath, calling down a curse upon himself that he never even knew him. And Jesus washed all of their feet. He knew who he was. He knew where he had come from. He knew where he was going. And when you know who you are, you don't have to prove anything to anybody. You're free to be who you are. But if you don't know where Jesus comes from and where he's going, we miss it. Then later on in verse 31 of chapter 13, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, in a little while I am with me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, that you also are to love one another. By this will all people know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Peter says to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will. Peter said, Lord, why can't I follow you? I will lay down my also in me and my father's house are many rooms if it were not so would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you if I go and prepare a place for you I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also so you can't come with me now but after the crucifixion I'll come I'll come for you and so we continue on through all of these things. Um, chapter 16, verse 28. Jesus says, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. If you don't know who, where he came from and where he's going, you don't know who he is. Now that's true. Um, he's talking about um, another key word in the Gospel of John is this world, word world. It's a world, uh, cosmos is the Greek word. And what it means originally is it means order, order as opposed to chaos. And um, it's good order. It means good behavior, decency. It can also... Uh, it would be kind of like a saying that we use a place for everything and everything in its place. It's orderly. 
It can be applied to government, good government, and it can also be used as um, to describe an ornament or a decoration or a way of dress. When we talk about the world, it usually refers to the universe from the fact of its perfect arrangement. So we think about um, the solar system, we think about um, the galaxies, we think about the orderliness that makes science possible. And so when we talk about the world in that sense, then it means order. But it's also used in a, in a different way, uh, especially John uses it in this way, but you see it used this way also in Paul's letters. So when we speak of the world in human society, it's an interwoven system created by a web of sinful human desires, illusory beliefs, and surging passions. It is under the control of Satan, and it operates on principles that are contrary to those of God. That's what John, in his gospel, refers to. It is a participating in the values, desires, perceptions, attitudes, and behavior that characterizes unredeemed human cultures. Now, worldliness as such is not necessarily a matter of participating in questionable activities or adapting certain styles of dress or appearance. What it is, is the acceptance of values and assumptions of a society that has no place for God. So when John uses the word world, he's talking about a value system that has no place for God. So there are people in the church that live that kind of way. This is what Paul talks about and refers to them as carnal or fleshly or worldly Christians. They have the outward appearance, but the value systems on which they operate is completely unredeemed and has no place for God. They act and live as if God had no part in their life, regardless of what they say. So it's important for us to know who we are. It's important for us to know where we come from and where we're going because when you don't know what to believe, you'll believe anything. When you don't know what you believe, you will believe anything. And we have, haven't we, as a culture, as a nation. So it makes a big difference whether you came from an amoeba or, when you, or whether you came from the living God. It makes a big difference whether your ancestor was a monkey or another primate or whether your ancestor was God himself creating you in his image and likeness. And because we don't know where we came from, we don't know who we are. And so this is where the confusion, this is where the social issues come. The whole things about um, sexuality and gender and all the things about uh, morality, right and wrong, the whole thing about absolutes, all of these things come because we've forgotten where we came from or we never knew. And because we don't know where we came from, we don't have a clue where we're going. And so this is why people drift why people don't have a, a real direction, a purpose, a goal in their life, why their life doesn't have meaning, why people are afraid of commitments because they don't know where it's going to end. They don't know where they're going, so they don't know who they are. 
And so when we don't know who we are, the world has lots of answers for you. And they have a whole system of things, and we categorize people. We, uh, we know who everybody is, and we know who we are because the world has told us who we are. It, uh, it gives labels and puts uh, values, according to their system, on everything they see and everybody that they see. And so you become who others or the culture or society says you are. They fit you into the box. And this is what Paul talks about in Romans 12, isn't it? Don't let the world shape your way of thinking and give you an identity that is not yours. And when we do that, when we accept that, we live hypocritical lives. Uh, hypocrite, that's a word taken from theater in the play. And what that means is you have a person up there and they're acting out a role. That's not who they are. Those words are not their words. Those emotions, those actions are not theirs. They are assuming the identity of a character in a play. We've gotten so wrapped up in our video games and our TVs and movies and things that we began to try to live our lives vicariously through other people, not realizing that we have those things in our own heart and in our own life that are far more important, far more valuable, and a whole lot more real because it's who you are, not who they tell you you are. So we live hypocritical lives, acting out roles that have nothing to do with what God created us to be. Going through the motions. And the world is standing over here under the control of Satan saying, um, this is what you will do. This is what you will value. This is what will control your heart and your life. And it comes from within. So what about us? What about you? What about me? Do we know who we are. In Genesis chapter 16, there was a slave girl, slave woman, and she's running away. That can cost her her life. She's been purchased and torn away from her family, her home, her culture, gone far away into a whole different society and culture. Uh, different language, different dress, different everything. And she's plunged in that as a slave. And as a slave, she's being abused by the people who own her. And finally, she's had enough. And although it's a dangerous thing because she's alone, a slave, and in a foreign country, she takes out across the desert. And nobody knows who she is. Nobody knows where she is. And the worst thing about it is there's not a person on earth who cares. They don't care. She's an insignificant nobody. And God meets her because she's not insignificant to God. He created her. He created you. So you're important to him. So what a, God sends an angel down to meet with her out in the desert. And in chapter 16, the angel of the Lord found her. What did he say to her? Calls her by name, Hagar, servant of Sarai. 
Where have you come from and where are you going? So I know your name, but who are you? What's your real identity? And he tells her, he says, God knows you, God sees you, God has a plan for your life, but you're going to have to trust him. And your identity is not what they say, what they've imposed upon you. Your identity is you are Hagar, who God sees and knows by name and is concerned about you and has come, sent me the angel to speak to you and tell you about your life. Now, he told her to do a very hard thing. Go back to the home that you just ran away from because you were being abused and submit to them. And God said, I will be with you. And she did. And it wasn't just for a week or a year. It was for many years. And God used her to create a great nation of people. Identity, purpose, direction. And now she could go back in the form of a slave, but she was a slave no longer in her heart. And that's the key, isn't it? It's not what people say or do. It's not what's going on around you. It's what you know to be true about yourself inside your heart, your identity. But you've got to know where you're from and where you're going. In Leviticus chapter 25, God is telling the Israelites even about the land, the promised land. And in verse 23, he says, The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine, belongs to God. Ah, we kind of think it's ours. We got it, our name's on the title deed. We're in this country, this is ours. But no, it's not. For you are strangers and sojourners with God. And in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. And so God is saying, nope, you're just strangers and sojourners, which means, as the old gospel hymn says, uh, this world is not my home, I'm just passing through, and that's true. There were people who owned this land before you were ever born, and when you're dead and gone and forgotten, somebody else will still have this land. It's not yours. You get to use it for a while. It's the concept of stewardship. And it applies to everything, including our bodies, our minds, our spirits, our souls, everything. It's gift from God. They belong to him. When David was getting ready to consecrate the materials, he wasn't able to build it. But to consecrate the materials for the temple, he prayed a prayer in 1 Chronicles 29. And as part of that prayer, this is what he said. But who am I, and what is my people, that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. For we are strangers before you, and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. And so he understood the brevity of life, and the shortness of life. So because Jesus has come and revealed to us who he is, because we know where he's come from and where he is now, then that gives us hope 
for knowing who we are. So look around you for a minute. Just look at the people around you. You see them? Look around you. We're all aliens. <laughs> we all are. Aliens, all of us, every single one of us. Strangers, soldiers, pilgrims, if you want to call it. We're on a journey. We didn't start from here, and we're not going to end here. So this world, with all of its control by the devil and all of its pressures to conform and to, to be molded and shaped by other people's ideas and opinions of what you ought and think to think and do and be, the world that is there. Jesus says this when they're talking to him about it in chapter 8, verse 23. You, he's talking to the Pharisees who are challenging him, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. So, are you from below, from the world? Or are you not from this world? Created in image and likeness of God. John 15 tells us how this works. John 15 verse 19. He's talking to his disciples and he's telling them that the, the world is going to hate you if you're walking with Christ. Okay? The world, the world system, the world with uh, controlled and manipulated by the devil. Um, with all of its pressures, with all the temptations, with all the, the promises that end in death and destruction and emptiness. It says that world's going to hate you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. God has chosen us out of of the world. Ephesians 1.4 says the same thing. Paul's going to use the same terminology. And um, he's telling us as Christian people, he's writing to the church at Ephesus. And he says in verse 4 of chapter 1, even as God, well let me go back up into verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. So John and Paul, talking about Jesus, telling us he chose us out of this world. Um, earlier in John 15, he had told them, uh, you didn't choose me, I chose you. If you're a Christian, it's because God, through the person of Jesus Christ, has called you. We respond. Or not. John 17 Verse 14. 
Again, Jesus is praying now for the disciples. And as part of his prayers to God, he's saying, I have given them, your disciples, your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So Jesus has told us plainly, we are not of this world. The way that works is if we have accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are born again with a new identity. Isn't that what Paul says in 1 Corinthians? Uh, says if anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. The old has passed away, a new creation with a new identity. Who you are in Christ becomes who you are. Old things are passed away. Everything has become new. So what does that include? Everything. <laughs> All of it. <laughs> so we have a new identity. And we become um, children of God. So that's what um, this is all about, isn't it? Do you know who you are? Unless you know where you come from and where you're going, you don't. If you let the world try to tell you where you come from and where you're going, you will never know who you are. It's only in Christ and the new creation that he has given us that he restores the broken image. We were created in the image and likeness of God in holiness and righteousness to live for eternity. And that's who we are. Peter talks about it. Um, this is based upon the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's where our identity comes from. We become new cre creatures in him. And what it means is as we come before the Lord, it's because in the upper room on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus was there with those disciples who were the closest to him. And on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat. This is my body. It's broken for you. After supper, he took the cup. After he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples saying, all of you drink from this cup. This is, cup is a new covenant in my blood. It's shed for you and for many. It's for the forgiveness of sins. And that's how we become new creatures in Christ. We accept what Christ sacrificed for us because he was who he was and because he came for the reason that he came to make us new creations in Christ. And through the uh, receiving the life of the body of Christ, through receiving the forgiveness that comes through the shedding of his blood, we are washed into a new life, a whole new way of looking at things, a whole new way of living. And so he's done that for us. 
In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, he's going to tell us about it. But in chapter 1, he says, If you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile, empty ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead, and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Now Paul tells us what that means, or Peter continues to tell us what that means in verse chapter 2, verse 11. Because we're new creation in Christ... Our citizenship is now in the heavenlies. And so he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Back in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, Paul puts it this way. So then you are no, for that, so then you are no longer straight strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. Strangers and aliens here, that stays the same. But when we accept Christ, we become strangers and aliens to God no longer. When we accept him as our Savior, we become part of his family. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And he lives within our hearts. And so again, um, when we think about it, if our body, both as individuals and corporately as a church, being the body of Christ, if that's where the temple is, if we are the temple of the Lord, where is the Holy of Holies? It's your heart. The Holy of Holies, where the Holy God dwells and lives. It's in our heart if we are the body of Christ, if we are the temple of the living God. So the writer of, of Hebrews puts it this way in verses chapter 13. Is that right? Chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. He's talking about uh, our forebearers in the faith that would include the patriarchs and the apostles, the prophets and all those. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, 
and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, like us. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. And you do. You can go back to the old way of living if you want to, back to the slavery and the bondage, back to the way of death, walking in the dark. So he said they could have gone out, but they've, they've got their eyes set on a homeland, one that does not perish and one that nobody can take away from you. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. That's what Jesus told the disciples, right? He says, I've died to prepare the way, and I'll come and get you when the time is right for you. And I'll take you home. Home, real home. Not this transitory life here on this earth. This is just the trial period. It's the preparation. All of our life here on this earth is a preparation. But you need to know where you come from. You need to know where you're going so that you'll know how to live in the present. And when we get confused, it's because we've lost sight of who we are. So this is what this is all about. And because it's that way, uh, we have communion every Sunday in our church. If you're a visitor, you are welcome to come. Jesus died for sinners. That's us. You and me. And so every man in that, in that upper room at the Last Supper was a sinful man. And they were weak and they failed. And Jesus loved them like he loves us. And he died for them like he died for us to show us a better way and to impart that better way to us. So you're welcome to come. Uh, don't feel pressured to come in any way. We want you to be who you are and to walk in the integrity of that. So you can come this morning and find out who you are, find out where you're from and where you're heading, and we invite you to do that. So uh, if those who are serving communion will please come forward. <clears throat>